0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. If you know me and have known me for a while, you know that I'm not exactly what anybody would call an outdoorsman. Sure, you know, maybe going camping once in a while for a night or two is something I can get behind. Uh, but any sort of extended time outside, I'm just going to go ahead and tap out. I'm, I'm good. Um, outside does not have air conditioning. Uh, and so I would rather be inside in the air conditioning. That's just kind of my thing. But for whatever reason, I'm fascinated uh, by people who do lots of outdoor things. I've I've mentioned before um, the race in in Tennessee, uh, where it's just sort of this crazy thing called the Barkley Marathons. And this week, I found myself uh, looking at stories of people who were uh, through hiking the Appalachian Trail. People going from the very uh, beginning in Georgia all the way up to Maine, all 2,200 2, miles. People who go in one shot and just go, yep, I'm going to walk from Georgia to Maine because I have six months to kill. And something happens as I was reading these stories, as I was, I was looking up uh, the stories of these through hikers. And what they would say is at the, as they got to the end of the trail, they would get sad. As they neared completing this sort of epic walk, they would get sad and, and want to don't want it to end. And so some of them, uh, they call them yo-yo hikers, uh, will get to the end of the Appalachian Trail and then turn around and walk it backwards and just start over and keep going. Which you know, because if you've got six months to kill to walk. Uh, in the woods, why not just take a whole year off of work? I don't know what these people are doing, where they get the money to just like, you know, yeah, I'm going to go walking for a year. Um, I'll see you guys. But some of them uh, keep going into Canada. Some people have made sort of a extra part of the Appalachian Trail up into Canada. All of these things. The point is, is that all these people, the journey is what they're after, not just the completion. That's why they get sad as they approach the end. They love the journey. They're not so concerned about the end point. And in our lives, we don't have that kind of perspective. Uh, Most of us seem like we live our lives as a continual set of tasks to be checked off. I mean, just think about since the time you were a teenager, what is it? Okay, got to get my license. Then I got to make sure I graduate from high school. Then I'm either going to go to like a trade school or college. Got to graduate from that. Okay, now maybe um, get a job, right? And then get a house. And then maybe start a family. Maybe help your kids graduate from high school. You know, and this cycle starts over. We live our lives in this sort of uh, sets of tasks that sort of check off on the next milestone in our life. Just sort of one thing after the other. And it becomes just this giant to-do list. But the problem is... We live under the tyranny of this task, and it pulls our attention away from asking the greater questions, questions about what's meaning in life, because all we're doing is looking at that next thing that we need to accomplish and going to go do it. We're mindlessly checking off boxes, fulfilling expectations, and we don't pay attention to the journey. We're just looking at the finish line. So it's kind of the opposite of those hikers on the Appalachian Trail. We're just so concerned with the next finish line that we're not paying attention to the journey. And the thing is, the journey is actually more important than the goals. The journey that we are walking on is more important than any of those individual goals that we're trying to chase after. And that's, that's true of our lives in general, but that's especially true when it comes out to living our faith in Jesus. For many of us, Christianity has become just another set of finish lines, another set of tasks that we're trying to cross off a list. But the way that the Bible describes our faith is far more journey-oriented than goal-oriented. It's sometimes an arduous journey— but it's not some sort of arrival point in our lives. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 141, and and it's kind of like a trail guide for the Christian life. It helps us orient ourselves to the path. It helps us to to pay attention to the journey as we go. And so I want you to see this by by hearing the Psalm read to you. If you are able, I would ask that you would stand um, as we read Psalm 141, as I read it to get to you. "'O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds.' In company with men who work iniquity, and let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown off the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol but my eyes are towards you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Let me not be, let me not, leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. City Church is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. If you look at the notes around this psalm in your Bible, it says that it was a psalm that was written by David. And it it was... But it was a psalm that became popular uh, long after David's life. We've seen this, we see this in our lives where an artist might have a song that becomes popular after they pass away. In some ways, that's kind of what this is. This is one of David's greatest hits that became famous later because it helped the people of Israel as they came back from exile, as they returned from being uh, departed from the land. You might remember that story, and it's a significant one for the Old Testament. The people of Israel had. Sinned, and so God had sent judgment in the form of the Babylonian Empire, and the Babylonian Empire had come in, come in and it destroyed Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar burned the temple to the ground, and it took all of the people of Israel, and for 70 years they lived in Babylon and Persia and all of these other places, but after that 70 years, they were given the chance to go back to the land. We read in books like Nehemiah and Ezra about coming back into the land and rebuilding the temple. The problem was When they got back into the land, when they rebuilt the temple, it just wasn't the same. In fact, the the Bible says that the people that were old enough to have seen the temple before they were taken away to exile and then saw the new construction of the temple wept because it just wasn't the same. And so this was a moment that was seared onto the imagination of the people of Israel. It was a moment that, that shaped their lives all around them. They had checked the box. Of returning back to the land. They had accomplished the task of rebuilding the temple, and yet here they were, and it just didn't feel right. And this psalm became a way to sort of navigate through that moment for them, a life where everything hadn't turned out just right, where everything wasn't going just peachy, a life marked by disappointments and regrets. This psalm helped them make sense of how to live in that world. And so it gave them, gave them thoughts on, on shaping their path, on how to move forward with a settled hope. Because that's what David begins with. Even when things aren't the way that we hoped they would be, God was still there. David was still able to call on him. And not only call on him, David was able to pray with a sense of urgency. The sense of, Hey, I need you to answer me quick. I need you to respond to me as soon as possible. You might have a a friend or a spouse who, when you need them to like respond to your text messages, you have like a, a something you send them. That's like, Hey, um, I know you're probably busy, but respond to this now because I don't know what sandwich you want. And I'm right here at Jimmy John's and they're very fast. And they're asking me right now what you want. That's kind of what David is doing. Act quickly Come quickly to my help. Come quickly to defend me in this moment. And that's kind of contrasted, you know, doing the poem thing. Like when you're in high school and you have to to learn how to analyze poems, what's contrasted here is God come quickly, but I'm going to stand here and wait until you do. He says he's going to stand by the altar and lift up his hands like the offering is being lifted up. Lift up his prayers like the incense, the smoke that is going up over and over throughout the time at the temple. And so we have this contrast between, I need you to help me now, and I'm just going to wait until you act. I'm just going to wait, worship and pray until you help me out. There's something here for those of us who always want our path to be easy. I know that's sort of the case with me, because I would prefer a shortcut. I would prefer an easy way, and I'll take matters into my own hands and leave God to figure things out on his own. I'm very quick to want to wrestle control of my life and my situation out from what God is leading me to on the Appalachian Trail, um, there are people that they call um, yellow blazers um, because they will leave the Appalachian Trail uh, and they will find a road with its yellow markers and they will hitchhike to one waypoint or another. And so they will skip sections of the Appalachian Trail. They're going to take things. They're not going to go the hard way. They're not going to follow the path through the mountains. They're just going to go get on the road, and see if somebody can take them up to the next town. And of course, those people, if you're a yellow blazer, it's a very sort of not great thing to be. The journey of following Jesus does not come with promises of smooth sailing. In fact, the opposite is true. So the question that we ask is, what do we do? What do we do when the tension is on us, when we want to take the easier path, when we don't want to wait on what God is doing? Do we grab control? Do we try to force our way through, or do we do something different? Do we wait for what God is doing in our lives? That's what David does here. That's what David encourages these people years after his death to do as they look at the world around them. And so what is it that David's praying? What is it that he is waiting and expectantly trying to do here? We'd expect this to be some sort of imminent danger. Maybe the maybe a new enemy is coming. The Persians are gonna come take us away again. Or maybe, like some other Psalms, there are there are people that are saying things about David that aren't true, that are lying about him. But David says that I'm gonna wait. I'm going to wait with my hands raised, and I'm not waiting, and I'm not scared of a violent attack, and I'm not scared of people saying things about me. What I'm concerned about is temptation. David says again and again, set a a guard over my mouth. Keep watch over my lips. Do not let my heart be tempted with evil. In many ways, the the heart of what David is asking in this psalm, the, the big idea of this psalm is lead me not into temptation, just like we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer. So David expectantly, urgently waits for God. And what does he ask God for? Do not lead me into temptation. Do not let me fall into sin. Now, if I'm being honest about my own prayer life, I cannot think of the last time outside of praying the Lord's prayer that I have asked God to deliver me from temptation. I don't know about you, Most of the time, uh, my prayers uh, unfortunately seem more like a shopping list towards God. Here's the things I need you to do, God, if you would. Maybe, Maybe if I'm being real thoughtful, maybe if I'm being like real careful, I might have some sort of idea about the kingdom of God in my prayers, maybe, sometimes. But I can't remember the last time I genuinely prayed that God would not lead me into temptation. And I think the reason why this is true for many of us is because at the end of the day, We don't really mind temptation. We don't really mind falling into temptation. And I think that's true of David as well. Look at what David says in the last part of verse 4. He says, God, help me not to eat of the evildoers' delicacies. This is the fine foods that that these people have to offer. Uh, To put it another way, Solomon says in the Proverbs that stolen bread is sweet. And what David and Solomon are communicating in both of those scenarios is that, listen, there is a pleasurableness, however fleeting, that comes from sin. We know this. That's like the whole reason we sin is because it's promising us some sort of pleasure, some sort of security, some sort of goodness that we think that we need from it. And so that's the reason why we fall for it. The problem is, The high is never sustainable. It's never quite as good as his promise. But we, being humans, jump in all the same, expecting this time to be different. And all we're left with is the regret that comes on the back end. What David is doing is he's able to see that. He's able to look inward at his own heart and see that he needs to be delivered from this because given the choice he is going to walk in that direction. Given the choice, he is going to give in to the temptation. And so David urgently prays for God to deliver him. On the, on the west coast, there's the sort of equivalent of the Appalachian Trail out there, and it's called the John Muir Trail. And this one only takes about three weeks to hike, uh, but, it's, but it's a much harder hike than the Appalachian Trail. And on the John Muir Trail, about three days into the three-week hike, uh, there's a place that's called the Devil's Pole Pile. And the reason why they call it – well, one, there's like a geological formation that looks like a giant thing of sticks. But it's also because all of the people who quit throw down their hiking poles (laughs) – as they're giving up, as they walk away. Because they realize that maybe they've walked the Appalachian Trail, but the John Muir is a horse of a different color. Three days in, they're bailing. There's a post office there where you can kind of call the Uber and get out of there. And so everybody sort of bails and throws the sticks to the side. That's us. That's us so many times. How many times are we the people who, when the going gets tough, let's just bail? When things get hard. When the rubber meets the road, I'll take a plane ticket. I am just going to get out of here. Beloved, this is not the path that we're called to walk. This is not what we are called to because David is showing us that we need to be delivered from temptation, that the way of Jesus is hard. It's hard to keep our faith in the face of tragedy and doubt which are normal things for Christians to experience. It's hard to walk in the way of Jesus when so few of our friends do. The ethics of the Christian life are so foreign to others around us that we can feel isolated and like aliens in many points in our lives. And yet David is asking, do not let me fall into temptation. And he knows that he can't do this alone. That's why if you look there um, in verse five, he says, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. David sees the need for friendship and, and for the deep friendship where you're able to talk to one another and say, hey, um, I think you're wrong on this. I think this is not the way your life should be going. That sort of deeper friendship, that's what David needs. He sees the honesty of a friend, even honesty that hurts as a kindness. He doesn't get defensive. He knows he needs it. And so David looks around and he turns his attention after verse 5 to the evildoers. Now let me be honest, if you have a different version um, that you were reading along as I read um, out of the English Standard Version, as you got to verses 6 and 7, it probably looked a good bit different um, than the verses that I read. And the reason for that is that the Hebrew um, that this text is translated from is really difficult. Uh, this week, as I was reading in my study, um, somebody said, "Well, verse five is difficult to translate. So let's look at verse six and seven to see if it helps us understand." Well, actually, those are harder. So this is our best guess. And so this is a this is a difficult text to translate. And so it seems like what verse six is saying is that the the tempters, the people that are that are out there that are trying to get David to follow them, the ones with the good delicacies, that their leaders are going to be thrown off the cliff and they're going to realize that David has been telling the truth the whole time. And then when he gets to verse 7, it seems like he shifts pretty quickly. Uh, to describing what it's like to live around people who are constantly wearing down our faith. He says it's like we're being plowed into the ground. He says it's like having our bones scattered on death door. All of these are these Hebrew idioms that are incredibly difficult to translate. But whatever he's really getting at, he seems to be showing us that the Christian life, the life of following Jesus, the path of walking after him is one that takes effort. Now, we often talk about grace here at City Church, um, how free and accessible the mercies and kindnesses of Jesus are. And it can be easy to think that because the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus is infinite and free, that it doesn't matter what we do. But that's not the case. What we do really does matter. Grace is opposed to any sense of earning, but grace is not opposed to effort. As Paul says in Philippians, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that isn't easy. And think about some of the basic calls of the Christian life. It isn't easy to love our neighbor. It takes effort. It is hard to love our enemies. That does not come naturally to us. And when it does, when we do love our enemies, oftentimes it costs us. We're scorned for caring like others. It can feel like we're being plowed into the ground. But even in the midst of that grind, even in the midst of David trying to follow the path, trying to do the right thing, he looks up. He acknowledges that his eyes are on God. His only hope and comfort comes from above, not from the delicacies and pleasures that temptation is promising him. David's faith is an upward-looking faith. He knows that there are all sorts of pitfalls and traps. There are all kinds of things, temptations and snares. And so he asked again that God would protect him from all of these things. And that it would actually be the wicked who fall into their traps. Uh, There's an old phrase that is uh, an old English that I've heard a couple of times recently, uh, that somebody has been hoisted on their own petards, um, which means that they have fallen into their own trap loosely translated. That's what David's praying for. And so what we see in the psalm as we put it all together, as we kind of see the big picture, is this psalm is movement. This psalm begins in the temple where David is there by the altar singing and praying as the evening incense goes up. And then as he moves out, he moves out into the world praying that God would keep him from the temptations as he sees other people around him in the city. And then he continues the path Out in the wilderness, where there are difficult terrains, where there are traps, and he keeps his eyes on God. And so this journey that he is describing in this psalm, this big picture, is the movement that we make each Sunday from worship into life. The movement that we make as we leave this place on Sunday morning and go out into the rest of our lives. He is reminding us that following Jesus is following the way. I will not be making a Mandalorian joke here, though it would be very easy because one of the great I am statements that Jesus makes about himself is that he is the way. It comes from John 14. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We talk a lot about truth. We talk a lot about life and God bringing us from death to life, but we don't often pick up on the fact that Jesus says that he is the way, that he is the pathway, the pattern that we are to follow. The way of Jesus, the Christian life, is one of radical love, self-sacrifice, and service to others. That's the way of Jesus. It goes first. It loves those who can't give us anything back. It cares for those who can't do anything in return for us. It speaks compassion to a world around us that just values power. It's interesting that, that for the first 15 to 20 years that the Christian church, um, were not, people weren't called Christians. When Luke records the book of Acts, uh, people that follow Jesus aren't called Christians until the church at Antioch is up and running, which is like 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. But up to that point, before that, the followers of Jesus were called followers of the way. And in so many... Uh, aspects, that is exactly what we are called to be. So church, let's blaze a path and follow the trail markers laid out by Jesus, the forerunner of our faith. It's a tough hike, but it's not a solo hike. We go on this path with the church around us, pilgrims in a strange land, strangely empowered by the Holy Spirit that proceeds from Jesus and leads us in the way that we should go. And so as we face this world around us that is sometimes disappointing, that is sometimes tragic. As we get to look around at this journey, let's not see a series of boxes and goals and check boxes to be marked off, but rather let's see a journey together with God's people, pilgriming on, following the way. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have loved us and given yourself for us. God, we are quick to fall into temptation. We're quick to give in and give up. And yet your forgiveness and mercies are new every morning. Would the vastness of your love and grace remind us that we can follow after you? Would it give us the strength we need to continue in that? And as we do, would you help us to see the world around us, to look up from the goals and see the journey. In Christ's name, amen.